welcome to the podcast devoted to helping you win the race Christ has marked out for you. Christian author Rick Phillips writes, To be a man is to stand up and be counted when there is danger or other evil. God does not desire for men to stand by idly and allow harm or permit wickedness to exert itself. That's from the Masculine Mandate. This episode examines the masculine calling to be fierce protectors and warriors and identifies two reasons men often fail to fight the battles God has designed them to fight. Thanks for joining us today for Season 3, Episode number 30 of Mission Focused Men for Christ. My name is Gary Yeagle. This is the third episode in a six-part series that examines the hardwiring of the masculine heart. In week one, we saw that men need a king to serve, that we are hardwired to want to please a commanding officer. Last week, we focused on Genesis 2.15, noting that Adam is placed in the garden to work it, Hebrew word being avad, to help it reach its full potential. Having been made in God's image with the moral law written on his heart, Adam is to shape for God the culture that emerges as labor is diversified and economy is built and the population grows. Today, we examine the second task that God gave Adam to do in the garden. Genesis 2.15 continues, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. The Hebrew word is shamar. The basic meaning of keep is to guard or protect. Rick Phillips drills down on the word shamar. He writes, it is translated watch, guard, protect, take under custody, or exercise care over. This calling to keep rounds out the masculine mandate of the Bible. A man is not only to wield the plow, but also to bear the sword. Being God's deputy Lord in the garden, Adam is to cultivate, build, and grow both things and people, but also to stand guard so that people and things are kept safe. Adam is to protect the garden and those in it from harm. This creation function of males is easily seen by observing boys. John Eldridge, author of Wild at Heart, says, Capes and swords, camouflage, bandanas, and six-shooters— These are the uniforms of boyhood. How many parents have tried in vain to prevent little Timmy from playing with guns? Give it up. If you do not supply a boy with weapons, he will make them with whatever materials are at hand. My boys chew their graham crackers into the shape of handguns at the breakfast table. Every stick or fallen branch is a spear, or better, a bazooka. Despite what many modern educators would say, this is not a psychological disturbance brought on by violent television or chemical imbalance. Aggression is part of the masculine design. We are hardwired for it. Well, men are designed to keep, that is, protect our loved ones in three ways. First, protect others physically. When Nehemiah found out that the surrounding enemies plotted to attack the Jews rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem, he had them strap on their swords and then appealed to their masculine hardwiring. Remember the Lord and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Second, we are to protect our loved ones emotionally. A wise, involved father was tucking his eight-year-old daughter into bed when she asked, Daddy, do you think I'm pretty? 
Now, if I were that dad, I would have said, of course you are, honey, turned out the light and rushed on to my next project. But this dad was wiser. He realized that his little girl was lifting up the shade on the window into her soul. So he answered, of course you are, sweetheart. What makes you ask? His daughter burst into tears and said, some boys on the playground today said that I was so ugly I needed to wear a bag on my head. This father had the opportunity to hold her tight, assure her that she was beautiful, and help her process the feelings that went along with this wound to her soul. So we men need to be alert. Thirdly, men are also created to protect our loved ones spiritually. Adam failed miserably at this responsibility. Standing next to Eve when she was attacked by Satan, he did nothing. The consequence of Adam's failure to protect Eve in the garden sanctuary was horrific. Satan and sin took over control of the kingdom Adam had been assigned to rule, earth, with evil in control instead of God's righteousness, death and destruction spread through their entire kingdom. Now, Adam's efforts to develop the potential of the earth, Avad, and shape the emerging relationships, culture, for the high king are resisted by the kingdom of darkness every step of the way. Now, Adam's willingness to be a warrior, to fight for righteousness, to prevail over his kingdom, is put to the test every single day. The rest of this podcast examines the biggest obstacles today's Christian men must overcome in order to be the spiritual warriors that God calls them to be and protectors that their families and communities need them to be. The first major obstacle is this. Many of us Christian men have only a truncated view of the gospel. We correctly think the good news of the gospel is that by God's grace, we are saved through faith in Christ's atoning sacrifice, that our names are written in the book of life. But this is a self-centered and incomplete understanding of the gospel, the good news. The true gospel is the gospel of the kingdom. It is the good news that although earth's first king, Adam, rebelled against the high king and by that treachery lost control of his kingdom to the tyrants, Satan, sin, and death, the second Adam has come to overthrow this kingdom of darkness and establish the kingdom of righteousness on planet earth. To follow King Jesus is to enlist in Jesus' great cause, to follow him in the overthrow of the kingdom of darkness and establishment of his kingdom of light. Our marching orders are clear. Seek first the kingdom of God and his reign of righteousness over planet Earth. The gospel story is about kingdom change. For example, Mark 1.15, Jesus launched his ministry, not by saying, accept me into your heart, but by saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And the gospel writers tell their readers the good news is about the kingdom, Matthew 4, 23. And he went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus himself called his gospel the gospel of the kingdom, Luke 4, 43. He said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. 
And until Jesus returns, his followers are to proclaim the good news, the gospel of the kingdom. Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. You cannot be content to summarize Christian discipleship simply as reading our Bible, being nice, and going to church when you realize that the gospel is not just having a ticket to heaven when I die. The gospel, the good news, is that the long-awaited second Adam has come to win back Adam's lost kingdom and overthrow Satan's sin and death. Or John put it a different way, but the meaning is the same. He says, 1 John 3, 8, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. We are called right now to join Jesus' work of pressing back the kingdom of darkness so that the kingdom of righteousness, justice, truth, and love rules in each sphere of life. Jesus did not say, I am the light for my followers, but I am the light of the world. And Jesus explicitly tells his followers, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus does not give us the light of his truth to selfishly keep it to ourselves. God's covenant people, as God told Abraham, are chosen to be a blessing to the whole earth. We seek to spread Jesus' kingdom righteousness over every square inch of the planet. History is filled with stories of Christians battling for truth to prevail in their part of the culture. Let's examine just a few. First, consider Mother Teresa. Not only did she have to oversee the missionaries of charity that had over 4,500 sisters in 133 countries, she committed herself to the pro-life cause. At the 1994 presidential prayer breakfast, sitting just a few feet from a pro-abortion American president and first lady, she said, the greatest destroyer of peace today is abortion. She also took time to file an amicus curiae I don't know if that's the right pronunciation, brief to the Supreme Court of the United States that says in part, the so-called right to abortion has portrayed the greatest of gifts, a child, as a competitor, an intrusion, and an inconvenience. Human rights are not a right conferred by government. They are every human being's entitlement by virtue of his humanity. The right to life does not depend and must not be declared to be contingent on the pleasure of anyone else, not even a parent or a sovereign. Or consider another example of battling for righteousness in the culture, the story of Harriet Beecher Stowe, whose storytelling abilities inspired hundreds of thousands to see the evils of slavery. Harriet was the sixth child of a prominent Presbyterian pastor, Lyman Beecher. In 1834, the seminary, of which Lyman was president, held debates about slavery, debates easily won by the abolitionists. During these years, Harriet interviewed many runaway slaves, a practice which increased when she and her husband, Reverend Calvin Stowe, relocated to Maine 
and made their home a station on the Underground Railroad. A series of events, including losing her own 18-month-old son, deepened Harriet's sympathy for slave parents separated forever from their children on the auction block. She began writing Uncle Tom's Cabin, which was originally published as weekly installments in the anti-slavery journal. When it was compiled into a book, it sold 300,000 copies its first year and was made into a play in New York City, eventually becoming the second best-selling book of the 19th century after the Bible. When Harriet Beecher Stowe visited the White House in 1862, Abraham Lincoln fondly greeted her with the words, So you are the little woman who wrote the book that started this great war. History is full of men and women like Harriet Beecher Stowe, who knew that the gospel was more than signing your name on an eternal life insurance policy. It has always been to enlist in Christ's cause, battling evil and spreading righteousness over every square inch of planet Earth, which King Jesus claims as his own. The second obstacle to being the spiritual warriors and protectors that Christian men are called to be is this— The spiritual battle we're called to fight is invisible. The invisible nature of this battle between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light creates numerous problems for us. Here are just a few. First, we can easily get confused about who the enemy is. The enemy is not the Democrats, progressives, Black Lives Matter, the members of the LGBTQ community, or radical gender ideology activists. When Christians forget this fact and project anger and hostility toward those in these groups, we not only lose our influence with them, we lose our influence with everyone else who is not part of the political right. These human beings in these groups with whom we disagree are enslaved to destructive ideas because of the same sinful nature that we have, and they are those to whom we are called to show mercy and love even in the face of hostility. Jesus taught, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Your reward in heaven will be great, and you will be the sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful." I recently watched a video of a renowned Christian apologist from New York City in an open discussion with six non-Christians about Christianity. He was asked, what is the Christian view of homosexuality? Now, here is a great opportunity to antagonize the entire group, which he did not do. Instead, he said this, Christians say three things that have to do with homosexuality. First, the Good Samaritan parable and the very model of Jesus forgiving those who opposed him, Father, forgive them from the cross, means that all Christians are duty-bound to love and serve their neighbors, regardless of other people's faiths or different views of sexuality. We are supposed to make this city a great place to live for everybody, regardless of their belief. Second, The gospel of Christianity, which is that you are saved not by good doctrine or your good works, but by sheer unmerited grace, pulls out the self-righteousness and the superiority that tend to go along with religious belief, 
which has actually made a lot of gay people suffer. Third, when the Bible teaches us about life, the issues of money, sex, and power, the message is God created us. Therefore, God in his word, the Bible, is giving us directions for how we should live according to our design. Like when the owner's manual that comes with the car says, change the oil every so-and-so thousand miles. It's not busy work. It's saying that's how the car was designed. If you violate that, you are actually hurting the car. The Bible says sex is for a woman and a man inside marriage to nurture love and commitment in a long-term relationship of marriage, which means polygamy, sex outside of marriage, homosexuality are considered violations of God's will, but also violations of our own design. That was Tim Keller's spontaneous answer in the video, Reason for God. So the invisible nature of the battle means we can easily get confused about who the enemy is. Second, the battlefield is invisible. Since the battle is invisible, the battlefield is largely the human soul, our thinking, our decisions, and our feelings. The battle is in this human processing center, which is why the first piece of armor that we are to wear is the belt of truth. Paul further explains this part of spiritual battle. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. The invisible nature of this spiritual battle in our children's minds is quite disconcerting. We don't know how our children's thinking is being corrupted at any point in time. For example, I've discovered recently that many girls from Christian homes are rejecting what the Bible teaches about gender. Social media influencers have persuaded them that the Bible's creation account demeans women by telling wives they were created to be their husband's helper, that the Bible is the origin of oppressive patriarchy, that the Bible teaches the archaic demeaning idea that a wife should submit to her husband, which is rooted in male privilege, that the Bible oppresses women by teaching traditional family roles, that dad goes off to an exciting career while mom is stuck caring for the kids and caring for the home, that the Bible is sexist, teaching different gender roles that oppress women. By the way, I refute these views in Season 3, Episode 19, May 15, 2022. So the second obstacle to the invisible nature of the spiritual battle is that the battlefield is the mind, our own and our loved ones. And we're not usually alert to what is creeping in there. And then the third problem with fighting an invisible spiritual battle is that the impact of our fighting is itself invisible. We often never see the impact we make in someone else's thinking and even decision-making by teaching or explaining the biblical worldview. So the results of teaching, exhorting, and even parenting are often unseen, which can lead to discouragement. Perhaps even more disheartening than the lack of visible results of wielding the sword of the Spirit can be the lack of visible result from wielding our most powerful weapon in the spiritual battle, and that is prayer. God has ordained one primary offensive weapon that overthrows the kingdom of darkness, that is prayer. 
Jesus said to Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. There is nothing on earth that Satan so fears as prayer. He cannot triumph over prevailing prayer. But here's the problem. We can't see the results of our prayers. So it is very easy to lose heart. Can you imagine being Elijah? He marches into Ahab's presence and says, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Elijah knew God's promise to Israel that if they loved him alone as God, in God's words, I will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. But Elijah also knew of God's warning. If you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit. That from Deuteronomy 11. For three and a half years straight, Elijah prayed that Israel would repent and that Yahweh would withhold the rain until they did. We're told that he prayed that long in James 5.17. Can you imagine this? Day one, dear God, please move the heart of your covenant people to repent, to see the drought as the curse for turning after other gods. Please don't let it rain until they turn to you. Day two, dear God, Please move the heart of your covenant people to repent, to see the drought as the curse for turning after other gods. Please don't let it rain until they return to you. Day 365. Dear God, please move the heart of your covenant people to repent, to see the drought as the curse for turning after other gods. Please don't let it rain until they turn to you. Day 1095 the same prayer. Day 1200 or so finally comes, and God says to Elijah, tell the people to gather on Mount Carmel with the 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. By the way, both religions practiced a child sacrifice. James says that Elijah prayed for three years and six months. That's 1278 days. Well, you know the rest of the story. Yahweh sends fire down upon the altar, proving that Baal is a demonic spirit, not the true God. The people repent and slaughter the false prophets, and the rain begins to pour down. Except it didn't. Elijah must get on his knees and pray again, for at least the 1279th time. But the sky remains crystal clear. So Elijah prays again. Same result. Clear blue sky. Seven times Elijah prayed before a wisp appears on the horizon, and Elijah sends word to Ahab, get off the mountain while you can, because a hurricane is on its way. Prayer always releases spiritual power, but we must persevere. Perhaps that's why Paul said, The resurrection proves the back of Satan and sin has been broken. 
Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. To summarize this episode, as the third in our series, Understanding the Passions That Drive Us, we observe that God put Adam in the Garden of Eden not only to cultivate it so that it would flourish, but to protect the garden and those in it from harm. This protective instinct is nearly automatic in men when it comes to protecting our loved ones from physical harm. When it comes to emotional harm, men need to be close enough and alert enough to notice when our loved ones lift up the shade on what they are feeling inside. But the toughest battles are spiritual. We noticed two main obstacles to be overcome to be the warriors God wants us to be. First, we need to realize that a foundational part of the calling of all Christ followers is to enlist in Jesus' cause of spreading his righteous kingdom over the earth. We saw how Mother Teresa fought for the unborn and how Harriet Beecher Stowe used her talents to fight for the abolition of slavery. The second obstacle to be overcome is the reality that the spiritual battlefield is largely invisible. We need to remember that those in the LGBTQ life are not the enemy and winsomely explain the biblical view of homosexuality to minimize the chances that we are viewed as hostile toward those we are called to love. We saw that we are called to protect our kids from the destructive views that shape their thinking about the biblical view of gender. Finally, we observed that in spiritual warfare, we need to change our expectations since the real difference we make through stating biblical truth or especially the difference that our prayers make is by nature often hidden for a very long time. For further prayerful thought, number one, what do you think is the biggest obstacle to men battling spiritually as they are called to do? See your show notes for additional questions. Today's podcast, as all podcasts are, is available in print format on my website, forgingbonds.org. Also on this homepage is a link to an index of past podcast series and episodes that you might want to listen to when you have a chunk of free time. This link is also in your show notes. Next week, we continue our summer series, Understanding the Masculine Passions That Drive Us, by examining our masculine calling to pursue a beauty to love. It's not good for a man to be alone. Thanks for listening today. If this podcast has been helpful to you, don't forget to tell other Christian men about it, as together we seek to swell the ranks of strong, godly men who are leading their families and churches well. Mm -hmm.